this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al, age 37. <laughs> I had to add that because apparently many listeners think I'm at least 100 years old. <laughs> this week is our food special. We're about to head out of the studio to speak to stallholders at Borough Market. And after that, we'll chat to the food writer and restaurateur Tim Hayward about the fraught issue of service charge. Is tipping on the way out? Later on, I'll be eating small donuts with chef and TV star Ravinda Bogle. Next week is our cinema special. We're going to be discussing the best and worst films of the year, and we'd like to know what yours are. Let us know at facebook.com slash everything else podcast. So we're in Borough Market. It's feeling Christmassy. Borough Market is one of London's best food markets. You can buy sea urchins, Stilton cheese, mulled wine, some of the best steaks I've ever seen in my life, venison, all types of salami, bread, cakes. For a certain type of foodie, it's, it's heaven. And we're going to go around and ask stallholders what is the one thing that makes Christmas Christmas for them. And with your chef's hat on, you've been asking some other people this question about what makes Christmas Christmas for them for your food and drink special in the magazine, is that right? I have. From Tokyo to Peru, I've been uh, interviewing some of the world's best chefs. Daniel Harm in New York, Anna Ross, who has crowned the best female chef in the world. I have seven of absolute stars, and that will be in a magazine next weekend. Okay, let's hit Borough Market. My name's Richard, I'm uh, from Bath Soft Cheese, and what makes Christmas for me, of course, is Bath Blue, our award-winning blue cheese, which is far better than Stilton. My name is Thea, the stall is Exquisitelli, and we sell cured meats from the South Tyrol, which is the most northern region in Italy, hence the Alps Dolomites. And Christmas, really Christmas foodie, is either the Speckham or venison or wild boar. So my name's Sam, I work for Rich Howard's Oysters. And what makes Christmas Christmas for me? I'm gonna have to say oysters, aren't I? Cheeky little oyster starter for your Christmas dinner, a little bit alternative. Straight open, raw, bit of lemon, knock them back. It's the best way. My name is Charles. Uh, we're selling produces from the east of France only. To me, Christmas means the smell of mulled wine. My name is Gorda. This is a finest fish stall in the Borough Market. Christmas for me is just my family, to see my family all together. And any food and drink? I am mulled wine, for sure. Everyone is saying mulled wine. <laughs> because it's a Christmas. I work in the Ginger Pig Borough Market. The Ginger Pig is um, one of the most renowned butcher shops in the country. Uh, we specialise in free-range meat, all from our own farm in North Yorkshire in Leversham. What makes Christmas Christmas for you? Just the satisfaction of such a big day for around the country and that we provide, you know, the centrepiece for that, you know. Like the turkey is always the big showstopper, you know, that brings the theatre to Christmas. We've always had a big theatrical piece of meat, you might say, where it can feed like 30 people and it's just like four of us, so yeah. <laughs> can I come round? Yeah, you want, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My name is Murat. I'm working in Turkish deli shop in Borough Market. Christmas means sweet. To me, that means sweet. And what kind of sweet thing? Uh, we'll probably say Turkish delight. <laughs> okay, Al, what makes Christmas Christmas for you? Stealing brandy butter. A lot of people have said that their Christmas is all about you know, family and sitting around the table. Mine is that little moment shortly after 
breakfast probably on Christmas morning that sort of fallow period when not much is going on and I might open the fridge to look for a cold sausage and there it is it's like a little pristine pot of supermarket brandy butter um, I've got no truck with homemade brandy butter it's never as good and then that little moment comes where you think oh I shouldn't do that no one's opened it yet and then and then I do open it and have a little taste and and then after a bit I found that you have to keep going in order so that the pot looks like it was actually opened a couple of days ago and you haven't done it and then for the rest of Christmas I'm sort of like find myself sneaking back to the fridge brandy butter that has not been socially sanctioned is better than brandy butter that has been and nobody wants lots of boiled raisins with their delicious brandy butter so that's what makes Christmas Christmas for me <laughs> okay so that's that's Christmas for you I, I'm not such a fan of brandy butter actually I think it's kind of gross I, not as gross as Christmas pudding in fact I'm not actually that into Christmas as, as a whole as a general theme there is a Scrooge element <laughs> there is a strong Scrooge vein or humbug but a humbug but I do quite like the homemade mince pies that my granny used to make with a star on top. I don't like the ones where the top is like completely covered. You've got to be able to see the mince meat through. So she made these little star shapes with like a pastry cutter and they go on top of the mince pie. So not too much pastry and no brandy butter. Very thin pastry, nice homemade mince meat, not that horrible stuff from the supermarket. Any cream? No. Definitely not brandy butter. I'm quite quite a purist. It's quite an aesthetic Christmas at my house. <laughs> Sounds like a slightly joyless mince pie. My grandmother will be rolling in her grave. Okay, so in a moment we're going to be talking to Tim Hayward about tipping. But first of all, Grizz, have you ever been a waiter? I have, yes. I spent a summer in between first and second year at university waitressing at the National Gallery restaurant in Edinburgh. It was during the Edinburgh Festival, which is quite a busy time, and lots of American tourists, and um, I was not a very good waitress. So out of five, how many marks would you give yourself? Probably like a one and a half. One and a half? <laughs> Maybe a two. <laughs> I mean, like my hair quite often used to get in the food, I mean, at least once a day. I would always forget things. I didn't know the names of anyone. you put your hair in the food? I just sometimes didn't write down the food to give... Listeners that's, less, that's less than a two. I have quite long hair, and it just. And at this time, also, I had a perm, which was not a good look anyway. But you had this, a perm. So I had quite curly long hair. That's an extremely exciting revelation. <laughs> so the perm. And so I'd be handing over like a plate of spaghetti, and I could see like a curly hair inside it. It was really, really not very appetising. You've been a waiter. Would you? Would you give yourself more than a one and a half? No, I'd give myself a definite zero. I could only carry two plates. Which is really oh, I could definitely manage three. Okay, well then, you know, I could only do two plates. <laughs> I used to forget orders. I used to spill things. I used to turn up at tables of six with only five main courses, obviously in three different loads because I could only carry two plates. <laughs> I think one of the worst things about it, or at least from everyone else's point of view, was that my uncle used to own the restaurant, so I was unsackable. I was like horribly <laughs> incompetent as well as unsackable. Yeah, I was a, an abysmal disgrace to the extent that when tips were handed out at the end of the night, I'd be embarrassed to take any. I'd be like, I just knew that not a single one of these tips had been... <laughs> it was actually for you. Yeah, I earned a single one of them. I was just like, yeah, it was a disaster. But it's uh, quite hard, isn't it, waitering? I think it's the most stressful thing. I mean, <laughs> it's, like, it's like serious, Until I started doing the podcast, I think it's the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I mean, I just can, you have to hold so much information in your head at the same time, look completely placid, smiley and friendly... 
deal with really difficult yeah, people you're quite good who are that. shouting in your face. Yeah, but in life, you have, a, you have a nice sort of calm exterior. You don't have, like, the sort of urge to sort of flap like I do. No, maybe not. But I did find the thing of just, like, remembering to do lots of things... I did find that quite difficult. I mean, I would often just completely forget to tell the kitchen that a table of eight all wanted risotto or whatever, and they'd be looking at me expectantly, and I'd suddenly realise I hadn't even put the order through yeah, that's a on the machine. When I wasn't pouring summer pudding on some poor guest's skirt, I was quite good at being sort of chatty. I'm yeah, really, when like I try really hard, thing. I'm really obsequious. I can be really obsequious. <laughs> which is why I'm in awe of waiters who work very hard for not enough money and deserve every tip they get, except that the future of tipping looks to be in some doubt, and we're going to talk to food writer Tim Hayward to find out more. You were working as a waitress in a for coming on the podcast thank you thank you okay so is tipping on the way out gosh uh, i wouldn't like to predict it was actually going to disappear at any point in the immediate future but it seems to be moving that way we've got a sort of issue around legislation and collection of tax around it i mean for many many years we used to pay people minimum wage it would be less in some cases and that everything they kept as their tips they would just pocket and over the last few years the government's basically caught up with it as rightly they should and those people are going to be taxed on what it is that was taken and so in order to get that money taxed it has to come usually filtered sort of through the business we're also going through this situation now where we're getting more and more towards cashless payment so people have been paying by card for ages but even for small transactions that they might have left a tip for a coffee or something like that it's going on a card machine it's going on a contactless machine so the government has caught up because yeah. they want more tax or because previously waiters were getting stiffed? We had an entire sector of British industry where people were being paid cash in hand. I mean, and I remember someone once putting a £10 note into my apron when I was a waitress, and I thought, great, I was supposed to go and share it with all the rest yeah. of them, but it definitely didn't go through the books. No, 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 absolutely not. And that, and that pertained for, for ages and ages and ages. And it was the same as the building trade used to be. Everything was cash in hand, everybody knew about it, and it was kind of a black economy. So I think the change in the way the transaction takes place out the table has meant that it's been possible for the government to get on top of it. It is sensible. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all for legitimising the way the, the process of the industry is run. But do you think the waiting staff are going to lose out because of this? Or are they, are they worried about that? It's profoundly regional. Londoners now tip pretty well. You must have seen those marvellous things on the card machines where they hand you the machine and it's actually got... 10%, 12%, 15%, 20% on the right hand side, you can select. I love that. That is so cool because it just, you know, it just fits into the transaction. You hit it and it and it works. And it plays with your mind, doesn't it? It does play with your mind. And there's all that stuff about, you know, I think there's some, some of them very, very cleverly set 15% as the top and there's a sort of a 14% below it and then it drops down to a 12 and a half. And it's quite clever. It's like the second cheapest bottle of wine on the list. Right. <laughs> it's the one that they actually want you to go to. There's, there's some behavioural stuff going on. It doesn't go to a 5%. No, no, exactly. <laughs> How stingy are you? Yeah. Yeah. Like most big metropolitan international cities, you know, we've got it. We understand that it's part of the system. But the rest of the country can't, uh, just can't get its head straight about what it's doing with tipping. I mean, I run a restaurant in a provincial town and just looking at the, the figures across the piece, there's a tiny percentage of staff's pay ever will come from tips because people just routinely don't tip. But why is that? A lot of customers think that, that the tip is a 
wonder if it's tied into our class system. It could even be that. Tipping is an act of high-handed generosity from the person who's buying the the, the, the service. It's sort of an act of kindness. Sort of noblesse of leave. But, but, but that kind of is what it is, isn't it? Well, no, not when you've been hired by the restaurant on the basis of yeah, minimum wage love and uh, as much as you can stuff in your, in your apron, which is how it was for years. And certainly when I started working with restaurants in London, there were people taking home the same kind of amounts of money as low-level city workers. And they were slinging cash off the wrist, as they say. They were, they were dishing out the plates. They were making that much money, all cash in hand. So do you pay your staff proportionally more than you would have to if you had your restaurant in London? Yes. Yes, absolutely. The basic is, is You just up. assume that your customers are relatively stingy. I think practically one would never say that there's anything wrong with the customer at all. I think think you have have regional (laughs) issues about where they are. So different towns have different approaches. And when you talk to staff who've travelled around the country, you you sure get it. I mean, they will be, without any shame, tell you that such and such a town is just utterly, utterly stingy. And they're, uh, and they're a bit generous. No, I'm not going to tell you. Which are the stingy towns? Actually, the one thing I would say is pretty much every stereotype you can possibly imagine uh, is absolutely, is, is absolutely right. Al and uh, I both come from Scotland originally, so we're quite interested <laughs> to know. I'm imagining, well, do you think we it, know what the stereotypes are. Do you think it follows Brexit lines? I think it probably does follow Brexit lines in places as well. Yeah, I, I don't imagine there's much tipping going on in Grimsby. So do you think there's a there's a problem with kind of tips being built into what waiters and waitresses expect to be paid in that you're kind of relying on people's generosity, which could vary quite wildly from night to night. In most of the country, you're going to be relying on on people's understanding of how a restaurant actually works. You know, I've, I've sat in places and heard people banging on to the staff about, you know, I know how much a pork chop costs, you know, why am I paying four times that for this? And you've got to explain that someone's got to clean the toilets and there are 10 staff out there in the kitchen and the, the, the light and the heat the and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, There's all yeah. that stuff that puts that price up. I think this this odd notion that they sort of just don't get that the service has to be paid for in some way as well. Now, it would be ideal if we were actually able to put the price of food up to even half decently cover what it is we do at the moment and what we have wanted to pay the staff correctly and make the entire system fair all the way through. But it's a weird industry. Restaurateurs are all independents. They're incapable of any kind of collective action. They're just fighting like cats in fighting a bag. Fighting like cats in a sack. As a result, you know, you can't be the first restaurant in town to put all your prices up by 10%, because we know that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have real trouble finding staff in a couple of years down the line. And we don't know where they're going to come from. We know we're going to have to put their salaries up. But if we put ours up and we put the price up to cover it, customers will simply go where it's cheap. That is it. Let's go back a little bit. The whole thing is weird, isn't it? I mean, you don't tip the guy who sells you a pair of shoes. I tip my cab driver. I never tip an Uber driver. Um, my wife tips her hairdresser. She's not really into tipping much in a restaurant. It's like, where it's does this all come from? It's crazy, isn't it? Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with your wife. That's just a complete gender split, which is that is any waiter will tell you that women, particularly in groups, tip far, far, far less than men. This is a fact. This is an absolute. Are we going to get wow. this? Is an absolute fact. You can get as many complaints as you so, like. Just ask an ex-waiter. Because the men are tipping waitresses, that they're I tipping women, this... or is it just that they just tip? I've seen a bunch of blokes over tip a male waiter. I don't think it's to do with looks as much. I wonder as if it's a kind of power thing. It's like totally a power largesse. thing. Largesse. Yes, and that's and that's one of the things that should be taken away. 
that whole big tip culture has to stop. Mm. But I mean, where does it start? It's a weird one. I think a lot of the behaviour does come from around the English class system. We are still quite awkward of the notion of being served by people who are serving us. They're servers, but they're not servants. We still can't quite sort that out. In our, yeah, I'm in our riddled with embarrassment. Oh, the guilt is enormous. <laughs> Restaurants as such don't go back that far. We're talking about sort of just around the time of revolution in, in Paris right. and people start, there's a hugely complex guild system about who's actually allowed to sell what kinds of food and, and cake makers can sell cakes but they can't sell bread and bread makers can't sell soup but they, actually they can sell soup because you dip the bread in the soup but they can't sell soup with lumps <laughs> in it because that's a stew okay. and you get these restaurant re- refers to a restorative broth actually, it's a restoring place a place you go and get restored and then they grow and they get bigger and hotels have their dining rooms that sort of cross over with restaurants. But Sorry, um, can I just say that the restorative broth fact is the best fact we've ever had on the podcast? <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, you should have me on more often. We've got loads of this stuff. There's a bloke you should read called Bemmelmans, and he wrote some amazing, amazing stories. He came from a, a restaurant family, a Swiss restaurant family, and he worked in all the grand rooms through Paris, Vienna, and in, eventually in Manhattan. But he is brilliant on the phenomenal hierarchy of the restaurant. We're talking about a time when restaurants were all about the maitre d'. The maitre d' was the guy in front who ran the place on behalf of the restaurateur, who was an investor and nobody knew who he was or cared. This guy was absolutely, totally all-powerful. At the back, there was a kitchen full of repellent creatures, some of whom were wearing these sort of greyish white outfits, and they prepared the food, but God, they were... So this but, is 1790 this, in this Paris? Is, no, 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 this isn't up to 1930s. This was the hierarchy. The maitre d' was the guy you gave the big tip to to get you the good table. He would get you thrown out if he didn't like you. He was the power guy to know and run the place. And it was all about front of house. Now, under those circumstances, professional waiters would actually pay a rent to the maitre d' to work in the restaurant where they would make enough tips that they could make a living. They were literally renting it. In some more traditional hotels, the waiters would actually take the money at the table side, and at the end of the day, they would pay off the kitchen for the food that they'd bought. So the kitchen was selling the food to the waiters so the waiters could take the food. Waiters were originally the ultimate self-employed individuals. It's quite a complicated chain. Oh, it's a massively complicated chain, and all of it full of this kind of strange ranking and loathings and hierarchies and of power. But a lot of that stuff is still there. Why are there such differences between countries? Why does Scandinavia not bother about it, but the US go crazy about it? Most of the stereotypes you could apply are probably true. The English have a, a long and established class system and we're quite good at guilt. And so we're a little <laughs> bit conflicted about it. Americans are all about the money and, uh, and are not afraid to flash the cash because that's a way of a legitimate way of expressing your, your superiority. But it's not even an expression, with. is it, in America? No. It, it's a, it's, you're obliged to. Yeah, I mean, you have to. Oh, tip. good Lord. When I was working in the States, my then wife was waitress and I have, she was a tiny woman and I've seen her chase a guy f- like twice her height down the street, pin him up against the window of a nearby shop and ask why he'd just stiffed her. Let's did, go out without paying. Did he pay up? He paid up, absolutely. And, and, and over the odds, it had apparently been a mistake, poor guy. God, it's like taking a dump on the table. You, know, you literally do not not tip, not tip. in America, yeah, just not. Yeah. So do you think you can judge a country by how it tips? No, because I think really practical, sensible places are actually getting behind the notion of, of not doing it now. The thing is that obviously not tipping doesn't mean paying your staff less. It just means, like you were saying, building it into the actual yes, and, their and salary. We've got a legacy of this stuff that we've got to get over. We've literally have got to get people paying 
a fair amount for the food that they're eating and understanding that eating out is not actually a cutting away, cutting away, constantly undercutting all the steak and salad you can eat for £7.99. If that's happening, somebody's getting stiffed somewhere along the line. Mm. So Tim Hayward's utopia would involve a world where waiters were paid well and we didn't have to tip. We should certainly be paying them an absolutely decent living wage. That amount that they are getting paid that's currently in a tip that we have to worry about and fiddle around with how it operates should actually be attached to the bill. It should be part of the bill for the food. But at the moment, restaurants can hardly raise enough money to pay for the food that they've got. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I worked somewhere where there was a 15% service charge, or maybe it was 12.5. It was it was fairly high, and that didn't go to the waiting staff, so it just went straight back into the running of the restaurant again. Right. And we weren't allowed to tell customers that that was the case. Oh, no, that's mm. beyond annoying. It's now illegal, Is it? and yeah. rightly so, yeah, because I suppose some of the larger chains have, have pointed out that if you're getting roughly 12.5% in service charge by fair means or foul from the customer, that's not just paying the waiter's wages that should also be paying a little bit for the napkin and the bread and the water and all those other elements some of which are theirs and the kitchen staff as well well that's that's the tipping out process where tips get shared back that way they have in the past taken some or all of it back in house and it's it's entirely wrong certainly if i tip in the uk i ask the member of staff whether or not they get to keep or share i always ask that now and and you absolutely should what is the trunk by the way I believe it's actually French for a for a, a treasure chest. Okay, how does it work? When a restaurant runs a trunk, all of the tips would be saved. And then at the end of the evening, the maitre d' or the head waiter would sit down, they'd go through the trunk, they'd sort it out between the individuals concerned, usually on a on a point system. So the head waiter would take 20% of it, then working their way down, senior waiters would get 15% each. And There's, so it's not about you did really well tonight, I saw you no, doing a good job. No, no, no. This no. Compensa- and, and, and the trunk is the thing that militates against this notion that the American idea that you wouldn't get good service unless you tipped well, and if you're a good right. tipper, you get good service. You don't. It's always spread, because you can have a lousy night, you can have a table of hopeless tippers, you can work your arse off to try and get some kind of tip thing going on the table, and then get stiffed at the end of it. Or you could actually be in there having a lousy day and somebody gives a big tip. So uh, waiters actually secretly know that it's, it's important to even it out. I mean, it says it's optional. Does anyone actually ever take the option of not paying it? I, I only <laughs> ever don't tip if it's been really, really bad. I sometimes don't tip if I think it hasn't been that great. So maybe I am confirming this gender theory. Yeah, you were saying earlier, you're not a, you're not a great tipper. I didn't say I wasn't a great tipper. I <laughs> you said, said you were a non-tipper. I said, no, I'm not Steve Buscemi, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. But I do think, yeah, if someone hasn't given good service, I won't tip. And that's having Even done quite a Even if they're going to be starving later on. Well, I do think they should be paid more in general, but I think it should be built into the... If I think the individual that has serviced me particularly poorly or in some particularly slack or insulting way, if I want to get my sort of my revenge on them through the money, you've got to be quite... You've, you've got to make absolutely sure the tip's going to go to them first in the first place and then before you withdraw it. The tip that's going in is not actually going to be dependent on the service awkward, name of the, it? It, it really would, yeah. say, Is it going to you and then yeah. give him nothing? In, in that, that case, case, no tip. Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's leave that there. Right. We get on to the more important question. Yes. Um, we've been asking stallholders and restaurateurs and bar staff in Borough Market earlier today what makes Christmas Christmas for them. And right. it seems only fair that we should ask you, what makes Christmas Christmas for you? Gravy. Gravy? Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. 
Gravy is my favourite thing. <laughs> gravy, gravy is the answer. What's the question? I don't know. I, mean, the, the, I think it was Talleyrand who said that the the French have only one religion and two thousand sources, and the English have only one source: gravy and thousands of subsects of religion. <laughs> and it's wrong because gravy isn't a source. Sources are sources have got recipes in there, things that are carefully created. The gravy is our cultural birthright. But is gravy not just something that my grandparents would put on to disguise the taste of badly cooked meat during no, the war? No, absolutely not. No, it's the juices of the beautiful roast. The roast okay. for which, up until the First World War particularly, I mean, people used to go on the Grand Tour from all over Europe. They would come over here to have the roasts. I mean, you know, we make the best roast meat anywhere in the world. That's a fact. That's an absolute fact. Don't argue. You're okay. wrong. <laughs> As a result, we have the juices of this thing, and, we, and you work it up into a, a fantastic juice that anoints everything. When my daughter was about... I think she was about five and we were talking about Christmas. She was terribly excited about what she was going to get and Santa coming down the chimney and everything else. I said, and what do you want for Christmas lunch? And I said, she said, I don't much care because it's really all about the potatoes and the gravy. And she's absolutely right. Everything else is just trimmings <laughs> to make the girl. gravy. <laughs> That's exactly right. I start the gravy in the autumn. Oh, right. So it's so a long I, process. So around the beginning of the shooting season, when, when people start dumping odd bits of game on my doorstep. Have you started um, your Christmas oh, yes, gravy yes, yes, already? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. So I started with, wow. a, a, I had a couple of leftover pheasants that were fairly badly shot, so they form a game stock that was the basis of it. Then I'll reduce that to a demi-glass, and that part will be the thickening agent of it. Usually around this time, I'll find myself an oxtail and do a quite jellified stock from that as well. And then I'll have these things ready on the day. Lying around your fridge? No, they're, they're in my freezer, in my stock okay, freezer. Okay, right. Absolutely. And then you on, have an on the actual stock freezer. Of course I do. <laughs> of course I do. And then, then on the day when we've actually we've got this beautifully roasted piece of meat and we've let it rest and the juices have been collected, I'll make it up in a pan, we'll have some good brandy in it and so on. Ah, oh, it's just it's wonderful. But it, it doesn't have a recipe, no. It just has a a belief structure and a, a liturgical object to to create it with. <laughs> Centuries of absolutely intuition. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'll have some clam chowder followed by beefsteak on rye, pumpkin pie with cream and coffee. I want a green salad on the side. Don't forget the French fried pizza pie, garlic and anchovy. Our interviewee this week is the TV star and chef Ravinda Bogle. Last year she opened her own restaurant, Giacconi, and we went there last night. Al, what did you make of it? I thought it was like eating in Ravinda's house. Just this lovely, beautiful environment with some of the most sort of lovingly produced food I've had all year. This amazing blend of spices with you know, sweet potato, lamb, lobster, beetroot. It was like this like, endless, wonderful feast. We did something that I don't think I've ever done in a restaurant before, which is just to ask the waiter to sort of order for you. And it's quite a revelation. I mean, you basically just get everything on the menu, the kind of parade of food that just comes towards your table. Is it weird for you to be in a restaurant at all? <laughs> no, Al, we've been over this. I have been to a restaurant before. OK, so for you, what were the highlights? Well, I have a very sweet tooth and Ravinda is famous for her banana cake and it was divine. It was the best banana cake I think I've ever had. It was wonderful. And also it was happened to be the first time that you and I have gone out on a date. <laughs> um, not too many awkward silences. No, I thought it was fine. I thought it went pretty well. Yeah, no fights. We sort of managed to get through it. Yeah. We didn't quarrel. 
<laughs> no. It was helped by the fact we were in this very lovely environment. We had the corner table. We both had a comfy seat. We both had a view. So it wasn't like one person was looking at the wall. Beautiful decor. She'd chosen everything herself. It was sort of mismatching. The tablecloths on different tables were different, but this really beautiful sort of Indian block printing. One of the actual blocks, the wood blocks, was in the wall. I don't know if you noticed that little yeah, feature. That was nice. It was very sweet. The whole place was just sort of delightful. Yeah, it felt like home. Gladly just move in. Ravinda, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Before we start, you have brought in something which has made the room smell nicer than it ever has before. Well, that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apart from you, what have you brought in? I have brought in some rose, orange and olive oil donuts. And they're a sort of cross between an Indian thing called a balushai and a little Turkish donut. And they've got cardamom in as well. So all those lovely warming things, good things. No one has brought in anything better than that. It's a conversation starter, I thought. It is. I want to go back to start off with. You were born in Kenya. You came to England when you were seven. Yeah. You have a mixed heritage of East African, North Indian, British... Was there a moment when you knew you wanted to be a chef? Much later on, I would never have dreamt. You know, I didn't sort of go down the traditional route of going to chef school and training and doing all of that. I trained as a journalist and I was working very happily. I had a lovely job as a beauty journalist and... um, a very good friend of mine had a very strong premonition because she'd seen a, an advert for a Gordon Ramsay cookery competition. And she said, I just have this overwhelming feeling that if you enter, you're going to win. And, and you I, did win. I did. You became Gordon Ramsay's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> you became You became Gordon Ramsay's new Fanny Craddock. Yes, on the I did. I did. And that was it. You've, you're famous ever since and you've never looked back. <laughs> and, you know, I went into it not expecting anything. I'd never actually watched the F word because I was never home in the evenings to watch it. I didn't realise quite what a big show it was and how many people have viewed it. I sort of won the show. I was delighted. I didn't think I could do anything with it. Went back to my journalism job and I remember my boss saying, we're going to lose you, aren't we? And it was only the day that it aired, I then started getting calls from agents saying, you may have a career doing this. It was only the the last agent who, they had a literary side and I had a very scrappy manuscript, which I'd been writing really for myself, recording my recipes. She saw something in it and she just said, OK, let's send this off to publishers. And within three months, I had a book deal. <laughs> so it's quite amazing. Wow. And your book was Cooking Boots. Cooking Boots, yeah. Which is also, I believe, your nickname, is that right? It was, yeah. So I was always the girl at the end of a party who ended up in my very high heels, <laughs> nosebleed heels, cooking and feeding people and nurturing people. And I think that's that's where the um, the nickname came from. You were cooking from a very early age, is that right? You, very early. You said that you... Your childhood was like being in a Jane Austen novel. It really was. So my mother, uh, we're four daughters, and her chief concern, having been married at 16 herself, was that her daughters should marry well. And if they were to marry well, they must learn to cook and to sew and to do all those, inverted commas, feminine things. How is your sewing? My sewing is terrible, but I cook well. I can cook. I can cook. 
and you're married as well, so she Just must be very pleased. very recently, uh, February, I, I waited quite a while. I think she would have quite liked me to get married 10 years ago, but... Um, <laughs> But as a child, you were you were shelling peas from a young age. Yeah, you that were... was that's my earliest memory of these sacks of peas coming in and having to sift through them. And every now and then there'd be a caterpillar and I'd squeal and potting them into a red bucket. And I, I remember it's a very visual thing, these emerald green peas in this red plastic bucket. This was in Kenya. Yes. And you moved to England when you were seven, as you said, and... And you developed, a, from my mind, a very strange love of English food. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. So we'd always visited England frequently. My father was an aeronautical engineer, so there was always trips to England. He, we had a house here as well. And uh, he had dual nationality because when independence happened, people were allowed to do that. And so there were lots of frequent visits. And... English food just felt so exotic, you know, shepherd's, shepherd's pie, pie and toad in the hole and Yorkshire puddings. And I just loved all of that. It and didn't also, taste sort of desperately bland. No, you know, it was it was this new thing, this new cuisine. And I fell in love with it. And um, we'd go back and we'd crave it. But, you know, back then we were only ever visiting for short amounts of time. So it always felt like this sort of wonderland, a very nostalgic place to be. Sort so of a Friday night in Kenya, you'd be eating toad in the hole. English food nights, yeah. <laughs> Fish and chips mainly. Uh, I remember my mother would lace her batter with um, ginger and garlic and carom seeds, which are really lovely and aniseed. And they just make the fish really taste fantastic. You have your own restaurant now, Giacconi, that's been going yes. for more than a year now. Yes, it still feels very surreal. <laughs> you know, it's been an amazing year. Everyone tells you it's really difficult opening a restaurant. It's very hard. But you can never prepare yourself for just quite how hard it's going to be and how many hours it steals from your life and how many times you'll cry in your restaurant. <laughs> what is the leap like between being a chef, which is a very stressful thing on its own to being chef patron of your own restaurant the buck stops with you and that's it you have to be over everything from front of house back of house health and safety the finances i had never done a pnl before i'd never done financial models i've had to learn everything it's a business and that's the difference are you a perfectionist I am a perfectionist, especially where when it comes to spices. I think for me it was inherent. I grew up in a in a house full of women, sort of very intuitively popping pods and seeds into pans and knowing exactly what happens when you grind it as, a, as opposed to when you pop it in oil whole. Though. When you grow up with that, it's inherent. You learn it. Is that it. something that you have to grow up with or is it something that no, someone like I could learn? You absolutely. And, you know, my, my chefs aren't Indian. They haven't had the experience of spices the way I have. But it's absolutely something you learn. But it takes a lot of repetition, a lot of trial and error and then eventually you start, your nose becomes attuned to it, to the potency of the spices. How did you choose the menu? I'd done lots of pop-ups and supper clubs and things, and so there'd been certain dishes that, you know, I could see people really enjoyed. Like the Pronto Scotch Egg, it was this, this kind of 
bonnie love child of a very British thing and a Chinese porn toast. And when you put it together, you create something wonderful. And the outside, the crust, isn't just breadcrumbs. We buy these really spicy Thai porn crackers, which we blitz, and we make a crumb out of them. So when you deep fry, they sort of puff up and go really crisp. And I think it's that textural thing. And then I serve it with a banana ketchup and pickled cucumbers. And it's just, it's just a really delicious dish. Is that your signature dish? One of them. Yeah, one of them. And unique to you. Unique to, yeah, completely. And I think that's the lovely thing about what we do at Jaconi. We are so mixed heritage, East African, Indian, Persian ancestry. It's cooking without borders, but not, it still has to be familiar, I think. Mm. You have to start off with something familiar. That's kind of what makes us cooks at Jaconi rather than chefs. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're giving well, it you something. Like you're being rather inventive. <laughs> we're giving you something familiar, something you know, but we're putting our own little magic. Well, it's, a, it's still it's a hybrid of, of very different cultures. It does sound original. Anyway, how often does your menu change? We work with the seasons, so there are a few things that have to stay on the menu just because they're so popular. And I think particularly things like our banana cake, I can never take it off. Too many people would fall out with me. But whatever captures my imagination or I think seasons aren't just about ingredients. They're about mood and how you feel and the kind of things you want to eat in that season. When you introduce a new dish, how long does it take for the chefs to practice it to perfection? Not long. I mean, I'm in the kitchen pretty much all the time. So I'll always be in service the day that we put that dish on. So I know it. Will you so be going d- back to the kitchen tonight? I will be. Okay. Yeah, I'm on, in service tonight. But, uh, you know, we cook it together and we do it enough times in a night for people to practice it and know it well. Do you care about what critics say? I mean, I must say, for the benefit of our listeners, that you've your restaurant's been overwhelmingly well-received. But do bad reviews hurt? I think they do, especially for me. I, I grew up reading these people, people like the late and great Adrian Gill and Marino Lachlan, all these people, especially when you were in the food industry, you read them so it matters to you what they think, what, what they feel. Ultimately, I think the real test and the real thing that matters is your guests. We're a neighbourhood restaurant, so return custom is so important for us. And it was my dream to have a restaurant in a neighbourhood where you could really get to know your guests, you know, what their dogs are called, where they go on holiday, how much money they have. And you've decorated it like your own home, is that right? Yeah, it really is an extension of my home and my home kitchen. So, yeah. I think you managed to surprise Gordon Ramsay with your capacity to swear. (laughs) Is that true? It is true. He'd come up to me and he'd said... Gosh, you're so well put together and you're so polite. You're the complete opposite of me. So I told him to F off you effing effer. <laughs> he, was, he was really, really surprised. If ever a man needed to be told to F off. Is it important to shout and swear in the kitchen? I don't think it's important. And actually, I don't run a kitchen like that. We're actually a very calm kitchen. I have worked in kitchens where there's a lot of that and you feel like you're on a front line of a battle rather than just doing service. And I don't like to run a kitchen like that. And male energy, perhaps. 
Yeah, I think uh, I have worked in particular kitchens that have lots of testosterone. Let's put it that way, and um, ugly, no? <laughs> which can be, which can be really sort of animal. I don't think you need to behave like that to get things done, and I don't think people should be afraid of you to be respected. I think that's a very different thing. But yeah, of course, there are times we work under such you know such long hours, such time constraints, such pressure. Of course, there are times when you just have to say effort. Are you sick of journalists asking questions about being a woman in a profession that is still dominated by men? I think it's inevitable that question comes up all the time and I just my view is that I think there are more women in kitchens now than they ever were before. Still though, I mean there were 17 new Michelin stars awarded this year. Yeah. Not a single one of them went to a woman and that is a damning indictment on the industry, is it not? Yeah, I think so and I think uh, one thing for me that I feel very strongly about is women who go off to have children and I think this industry is really tough for them and I think we as restaurateurs, as employers, as chef patrons have to really look at ways that we can bring women who've had children back into the kitchen and I think it's it's just so sad because there's such talent and then this industry makes it very impossible for women with children to work the kind of hours you know that are required and actually we have um, my sous chef has a two-year-old but we make it work. So you think you know if you allowed mothers to come back and work part-time or, or yeah or certain hours. hours yeah exactly then then it's entirely possible ruth rogers head chef and owner of the river cafe told me that she's always asked if women cook differently to men she thinks it's nonsense but do you think there is a difference no i do actually you said that women are intuitive at cooking to nurture and nourish while men are scientific methodical and shock horror trying to show off <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I stand by that statement and perhaps I shouldn't generalize perhaps there are women who cook like that too but I know the women I know and the women I've cooked with and the women I've worked in kitchens with work in a very intuitive way actually I'm surprised that Ruth said that because her cooking always comes across as She's very proud of the fact that her kitchen never has less than 50% women in it. And, yeah. Know, she's a feminist, but she she hates being asked if women cook differently to men. She thinks it's complete nonsense. Yeah. No, in my experience, and perhaps the kind of cookery I've grown up on and the kind of cookery I've been taught, I've always been taught by women, first of all. So, yeah, it definitely is a more nurturing, more maternal, more instinctive, intuitive, feminine way of cooking, I guess. Do you have an equal proportion of men and women in your kitchen? Uh, yeah, we, we've, we've sort of just had a change around of staff. But, you know, initially my opening team was almost all women. And now we've got a few more men, but it's, it's a good balance. Actually, we worked with the Council for Refugees right at the beginning when I opened the restaurant, and it's something that we want to start doing again. We're bringing in refugee women who just to train in the kitchen, and I think... From more, anywhere in particular? The first recruits we had were both from Iran, and actually the Council of Refugees initially said that we would prefer to send you two women at a time from different places. The reason for that, they sort of want to encourage the use of English and, you know... But this one lady was extremely nervous and needed someone from her country and her culture who could speak her language. 
to come and support her. She arrived and she said, you know, I'm so nervous. I haven't worked and I'm so out of practice and I haven't slept all night. I'm so nervous. And when she walked into the restaurant and she just saw all our textiles and our fabrics, she was like, oh, my God, this is like Iran. You know, it was so familiar to her and she was immediately fine. What's most important for a budding chef? Talent, intuition or hard work? Hard work. I think, you know, you've got to really commit you don't go into this to make money, even to make a name, but it really requires a commitment of your time and effort. And so I think hard work. And the ability to cope with stress. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. Kitchens can be such stressful places. I was once a waiter in a restaurant and I could only carry two plates at a time I could, and I couldn't cope with the stress. <laughs> the, FT, the FT is much easier. Looking ahead, do you care about things like Michelin stars? You know, I don't cook in that way, I don't think. We were given a nod by Michelin this year and I was absolutely astounded and delighted. But it's not the reason I cook and I don't think I... It's not that kind of cookery. Are you going to open another restaurant? I think at the moment I'm pretty happy with this one crying child, a relentless crier. But I think... The sort of whole restaurant thing at the moment, it's such a saturated market. Do we need more restaurants or is there another financial model or another idea that you can do? I think there's a feeling among some in the industry that with Brexit looming, a lot of restaurants might close. So the market might become less saturated. In which yeah, case, I think staff... You have, a, you have a duty to open another one then. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to. We certainly have ideas to do. Certainly not a chain. I don't want to open another Giacconi. It's such a personal little restaurant. But definitely have ideas for things that could be related to it. Okay. Sisters of Giacconi. Are you excited by Brexit? I think it's making life incredibly tough for restaurateurs and I do not envy people who need workforces like hotels. You know, when you say, are you going to open another place? Yeah, absolutely. If I can staff it, I will. But also the ingredients will become more expensive and have fewer tourists here. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Well, on that gloomy note, I'd like to try one of your amazing things. They're a sort of donut, I guess. Rose, cardamom, orange and olive oil. Okay, for the listener's benefit, this is this is the best donut imaginable. It's much smaller than um, what you might think of as a donut. It appears to have petals on it. It looks amazing. I'm going to try it. Please do. It has lots of double cream in it too, so you may need a defibrillator. <laughs> it's amazing. Ravinda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Ravinda Vogel's restaurant is Giacconi. And the FT Magazine Christmas food and drink special is out on November the 25th. In it, the world's best chefs tell us what makes Christmas Christmas for them. And you can also learn how to make Chinese food from your Christmas leftovers. Next week is our last episode of the series and we'll be discussing the best and worst films of 2017 with our colleague Raf Abraham. And I'll be chatting to the actor Hayley Atwell on whom I have a massive crush. Which films would you like to hear us review? Let us know at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or email us at everythingelseatft.com. 
You can subscribe to everything else on any podcast app and listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizzanel. And our music is composed and produced by Fatima.